Hey folks, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever time you're listening to That Jesus Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Titus Kipfer. How's it going, sir? It's going pretty well, other than World War II, uh, World War Three. sorry, World War II already happened. World War Three just kicked off this morning. We're recording Thursday, so that's not great. Yeah, kind of hard to joke about that, but um, I was just listening. It's going to be kind of crazy, this latest conflict, more than ever. We're going to see it in real time. Like, people have phones, and you can go online right now and see invasions and planes swooping down and... It's just and insane. Children crying. Yeah. So, <laughs> so so what's your takeaway, Titus? What what's what's your big picture view of of Yeah, the Ukrainian the invasion to Ukraine? I really don't think we should have a hot take because I mean, hundreds of thousands of people could die and there could be millions of refugees. I I at least saw some predictions hmm. that it could be that bad. And so I thought maybe we could read St. Francis's famous prayer, Lord, make us instruments of your peace, um, at least a little later. I, I just, it's just, it's just horrible. Um, people dying unnecessarily. Like, I was just thinking about it today, like trying to wrap my mind around what's going on in Putin's head and even mm-hmm. the whole idea of nation states and like soldiers going to war because their leader told them to. It, it mm-hmm. blows my mind. Like, it's really hard for myself to put myself in a Russian soldier's shoes and, and really think they're justified in doing this sort of thing. It's it's just, it's so maddening. Like, I, I put a, a Facebook status up about it, I think, a year or two ago. Actually, this was two years ago when the war with, when the issues with Iran were happening when Trump took out Soleimani. I just said three words. I said, war is stupid. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people got all upset about that. They're like, why don't you say something like war is hell or, you know, war is, is devastating. But I think war is stupid is, is really important because people are willing to fight for, you know, a cause, even if it's hellish. Like someone mentioned this in the comments. It, even if war is hellish, you, you might be willing to fight it be, for a good cause. But mm-hmm. th- there really is no good cause for this war and virtually any other war. It's just such unnecessary suffering yeah well well i want to kind of respond to that in a second but i do want to push back against a lot of our perspective as as westerners like oh no like i keep keep hearing people say you know this could be world war three this is this is the first land war since 1942 in europe or something like that i forget the exact like historical data but i'm like uh what about Africa like what about Sudan what about um yeah Greece what about what about what happened in Ukraine in what was it 2014 what a, we we really are very um myopic we're very uh narrow focused on random events and we can look at Biden at Biden we can look at um Putin and say how stupid this is that he's acting unilaterally and going in and invading another country without you know, um, bilateral support. And I'm like, but this is what Colin Powell and George Bush did in um, Iraq. Like Mm -hmm. you could actually make an argument that there was more justification for Putin 
to go into Ukraine, which there really isn't, <laughs> but it's it's just as stupid or more stupider for for Putin than it was for the United States to invade Iraq. Um, there's there's my hot take and my my kind of lukewarm take. Listening to parts of Putin's speech where he's going on and on and getting really passionate. Everything sounds very passionate in Russian, very intimidating, but um, very passionate about how Ukraine is actually part of Russia and it's always been part of Russia. And that's not accurate. It's not historically accurate, but it, it, at least if you take Putin as being a sincere monster, he sincerely believes this narrative about his nation that Russia has, what is it, 14 different states that used to belong to Russia that were part of the Federation, you know, before its fall. And Ukraine, even more than others, should belong to Mother Russia, or at least parts of it should. And it just, it just really made me think today, as I was <clears throat> snow blowing <laughs> and listening to his to parts of his speech, it just made me think today, how powerful and how devastating an unexamined narrative about one's nation can be. Yeah. And and this is nationalism. Yeah, well, but nationalism for sure, but particularly the stories we tell ourselves, like like Ukraine has always been part of Russia, or the United States has always been a Christian nation, or the Mm -hmm. US had overwhelmingly good motives in invading Iraq. And if the soldiers are behind it, the boys in blue are behind it, then then it's good. These are narratives that destroy and we have to examine them. And as kingdom Christians, we probably need to just let them go. Amen. Um, We've, we've got a Dr. Hart coming up in a second, but unless you have any other thoughts, I I thought I would just read this prayer. That would be awesome. Okay. This is of course attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And it's one of my favorite prayers. It's also a song. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. And where there's sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. So let's just all stay in prayer. This is, we're recording this Thursday. I don't know what is going to transpire by Monday, but um, God knows unless open theism is correct. And on that note, um, let's turn to to Dr. Hart in our conversation around critical race theory. So today we're joined by our friend Rebecca Mui, who really wanted to talk to our guest. Uh, She is the president, commander in chief, editor. What's your title over at the Kingdom Outpost by now? Just, Just editor. Okay. Uh, yes, she's joining us at like 5.30 a.m. from Malaysia. So if she falls asleep, that's what happened. Um, but we're really excited about our, our main guest today, who is Dr. Drew G.I. Hart. He's joining us for the second time. He is an author, activist, 
and a professor at Messiah University and the author of Who Will Be a Witness and Trouble I've Seen. Thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, Dr. Hart. Yeah, glad to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, so today we're talking about something that's not controversial at all and shouldn't get anyone upset. We're talking about critical race theory. And so why don't we just dive right in and ask um, if you could please define critical race theory for us. There seems to be like a lot of confusion and you know conflicting information about what it actually is. So just in a nutshell, I know it's a huge field, but in a, in a, real, in a short um, nutshell, could you kind of define it for us? Yeah, I think um, so. I would probably give maybe two different ways of defining what it is. Um, first and foremost, it was uh, uh, critical legal studies um, that developed right after the civil rights movement. You have folks like Derek Bell and others who are thinking about the ways that there's so much work that needed to be done after the civil rights movement was done. And so wanting to have a tool to analyze how racism is embedded in law and policy and systems and structures um, all throughout our society and ways to name that and have a, a way of identifying that through our legal system so that we can actually challenge and change those things. Um, and then I would say that it does have a second, a little slightly broader, that there are other academic disciplines that are kind of second tier critical race theory as well, um, still on the graduate level. Um, so in some fields around in sociology and education and such, um, the insights from critical race theory as a tool has also been applied to other academic disciplines as well. Um, and so, but even still, it's a tool, it's an academic discipline to analyze and identify uh, racism in systems, policies, practices, um, how it's embedded in everyday life, how um, it intersects. And yeah, uh, it, it's basically just a tool to, to name, identify, and then ultimately uh, transform the way that racism is embedded in our society. So that sounds pretty boring and academic, but... Um... It's obviously here in the U.S. It's very much of a hot button issue. People are talking about it all the time. John Oliver just did a piece on it last week. Uh, why is it if it's if it's such an innocuous, you know, ivory towers sort of high level academia stuff? Why is it such a hot button issue? Yeah, I mean, I think um, first we just have to acknowledge that there are folks. There are white people in the United States in particular that are, uh, I don't know if uncomfortable <laughs> seems like an understatement, but, uh, you know, well, we'll just say uncomfortable with the shifts that are taking place in our society, um, especially in, in response to the last wave of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe fear maybe is also a helpful word at this point, right? Fear of the changes that are coming. Um, and so there's already, there's a, a large swath of our population that are primed for backlash, right? So that that I think is, is important. And then to understand like what the big hype is right now is that there are folks who intentionally and willfully sought to grab something random which happened to be in this case critical race theory 
and they intentionally and willfully distorted it, willfully misrepresented it um, at, in terms of what it actually is, and then sought to disparage it and label everything that they that was anti-racism calling it critical race theory right and so there's multiple it's a misrepresenting and, a and distorting what it is and right it's a boogeyman distorting it and then labeling anything that they wanted to um that it's almost like the way i've one way i've said it is it'd be like me who like i don't like country music all right no offense to anybody that does but i also solid, don't like solid opinion <laughs> <laughs> solid opinion um but i also don't like listen to like country music like i just have a vague understanding of, of what it is i don't know the fine boundaries of critical race of country music but it'd be like me saying like i don't like country music i want to ban country music and then banning like every white person that does any form of music at all right um like that's almost the equivalent of what's happening right now um and so i think that the willful mis misrepresenting and then labeling everything is it, it kind of shows its cards of what it actually is about this is an effort to shut down uh efforts around anti-racism and racial justice that's what this is about and it really has nothing to do with critical race theory itself so can i ask um, one, yeah. just ask one more question about that from the sort of definitional uh how we use the term uh, a while ago titus and i actually had a discussion about the term critical race theory and he he kind of did a spit take when i was like well yeah i kind of use critical race theory in my classroom i teach middle school english and I teach middle school English to a uh, indigenous people in a, a tribal school. And in my sort of layman's perspective, when I say, yeah, critical race theory sort of informs some of what I do, I was saying that I, we, we read about the history of oppression of, of indigenous people and black people in the United States. We, we talk about um, historical racism, the intentional inequalities historically. We talk about uh, reservation systems, treaties, boarding schools, things like that. And then we ask, we don't have boarding schools as such for the most part anymore. And most, or, uh, boy, <laughs> this is a whole nother can of worms, but at least some of the treaty rights have been restored, et cetera. So why do, why do we still see the lingering effects of this today? And so I, I'm, I guess I've kind of equated critical race theory with sort of a look at the systemic racial issues that people face today is that um am i wrong can titus gloat about me being wrong and saying that critical race theory informs or am i just taking a more popular level understanding i mean it's a complicated right it's a little bit complicated so i would say you're not teaching critical race theory though you may be influenced by the exactly. fields of critical race theory indirectly right um so critical race theory helps to give us language to identify these things and so even if it's secondhand, like, you know, secondhand smoke, you've been shaped by the discourses of critical race theory indirectly and are allowing that to shape, to identify policies, practices, systems, structures, all that that are shaping, um, mm -hmm. you know, contemporary life. Um, but you're not teaching critical race theory, right? Like yeah. your students are not reading Derek Bell or Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, oh, like that, that would be... <laughs> you know, no, I'm joking. Like, I always <laughs> say to folks, like, you know, if there are elementary and middle school students who are like studying like Derek Bell and, 
and Kimberly Crenshaw, they need like a an applause, right? Because yeah. that's these are like super students. These are like you know high achievers, um, and they shouldn't be banned. They need to you know just keep letting them loose because they're clearly overachievers already. <laughs> um, so I think that um, to differentiate the actual like the actual field and discipline of critical race theory from then some of the insights that have kind of seeped and been immersed into our society, okay. I think is a good differentiation. Okay, yeah, that's helpful. So basically what I hear you saying, Dr. Hart, is that critical race theory is basically tobacco and, and secondhand smoke. No. <laughs> no, that is helpful, thank you. So one of the biggest objections that I've read from Christians is that it is promoting Marxism. And that is like, a, oh, no, you can't do that. It's, it's almost like, you know, they're akin to saying you're trying to promote a Marxist government or something like that. Could you explain from your perspective what the link is between critical race theory, critical theory and Marxism as an, you know, academic thought thing, not as in a march down the street with the sickle and hammer type thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question because so it'd be in, ingenuous to say there's no connection, right? In the sense that Marxism is a discipline that sought to analyze power as it relates to, you know, you know, the the pro, the the elite class and the proletariat right like um but it also was much more than that right it's a ideology and a narrative um i mean in some ways you could almost call it a religion right in terms of its full kind of scope um if you take it in its in that fullest sense of of marxism um but but in the sense that it is identifying the material conditions um of society um, you know, there are a lot of different disciplines that have both um, took insights from that and also critiqued it, right? Um, and I think that critical race theory, just like post-colonialism, um, you could say uh, took some insights from it and also were devastating critiques of, of Marxism also, right? So I guess the question, if someone were to say it was you know, teaching Marxism, I would say, in what way? Show me, tell me what in specific ways do you see that? Because they're using it in ways that they don't even know what they're talking about. Um, because it's not a Marxist ideology, right? It's not a Marxist narrative that it's telling. Um, in fact, it doesn't try to do that kind of work. And so, um, so, but to the degree that it is also concerned about the material embodied experience of people, then yes, maybe it has some little bit in relationship to Marxism, but but in some ways not not very little, and not you know that the I think that it's stretching to claim that um, it is promoting Marxism. I just I don't even know how anybody other than talking about like like so Derek Bell might talk about self interests right or something like like there's some of those like broad ideas, but who's going to deny that people don't have self interests and you that know, people don't make decisions based on self interests? Yeah, there's a sense in which like socialism, Marxist theories, and colonialism and post colonial theories and CRT are very broadly talking about the connection between how are talking about how society impacts the individual and the connection between society and the individual. And so anytime you're talking about some sort of approach to a community or a group, for some of our 
Western minded um, Christians, anything that's not rugged individualism is dirty communism. Is that right. maybe oversimplification, but that's kind of the vibe I get that it's actually a complaint against anything that strikes against individualism rather than a nuanced understanding of Marxism or CRT. Yeah. Well, one thing that I've heard people critiquing CRT, um, one way that I've heard them link it to Marxism is saying that it divides the world into two very distinct categories, oppressed and oppressor. So, for yeah. example, I, I had an employee once or I had an employee last year who was pretty far left. He was a white guy. And he informed me that all white people are doing some base level harm unless they really seek to understand racism and become like anti-racist activists that we're all doing some level of harm because we're all oppressors. Is that accurate? So, but the funny thing is, is that uh, critical race theory, if you actually take it seriously, is actually softening the blow a little bit, right? Um, in fact, I often tell people like, if you want to read a text that oversimplifies into a binary of oppressed and oppressor, read certain biblical passages, right? Um, and it's very just clean. There's oppressors and there's the oppressed, right? There's the poor and there's the rich. Um, I actually think that what critical race theory is doing is actually being more nuanced than that in two ways. One, when it talks about intersectionality, it's a way more a nuanced way of thinking about how we navigate our societies, that we can be uh, multiple things, right? Um, that I, as a black male, can both be a victim to uh, racial oppression and also participates in patriarchy, right? Um, and so there's complexities um, that are actually being named because of our multifaceted realities that we, we, we live into and the different interlocking systems of oppression that exists in our society. So it's actually um, critical race theory that is actually trying to nuance the conversation <laughs> around these things and not just say this binary. And so it's actually frustrating when I hear people say critical race theory just wants this binary of oppressed and oppressor. I'm like, that's not actually a good reading of critical race theory. And the other aspect of it is the challenging of essentialism, right? This idea that we are one essential kind of thing as as a race or a people it's again pushing against it and seeing the nuances of our own unique um personalities and peoplehood and so so i do think that um yes they do acknowledge critical race theory absolutely acknowledges that there is such a thing as oppression and that there are people engaging in uh that are oppressing and that are oppressed but also are nuancing that to also uh, help us think about the multi-dimensional ways that um, we live into that because of the complex systems, right? And I can give an example. Um, when I was when I was uh, over the when I was a college student, I, every summer I worked in um, warehouses um, to help you know pay for school and stuff and. One summer um, I worked at, it was a nursing scrubs place, right? They sold nursing scrubs. And what was fascinating is the way in which if, if you looked inside the main warehouse, it was mainly people of color working. And if you looked at uh, in the office, it was mostly white women there working, right? And if you looked at the those who were managers, it was mostly white men. And there was only a very small percentage of women of color in this institution, right? And in some ways, now, if somebody said, this is racist, right? 
well, traditionally, for a long time, people say, no, it's not racist. Look, there's black people here, right? Um, or you say it's sexist then. Well, no, no, it's not sexist. Look, there's white women working in, in, in the... Um, and so intersectionality says, look, we need to pay attention to the complexities of what happens when these things overlap together um, and create unique experiences for women of color in particular, right? As, as one example. And so I think that it's that nuancing actually is quite powerful um, and it... It removes us from just having these simple binaries of only oppressed and oppressor. Those, those are important categories, um, but sometimes they don't help explain all the nuances of what's going on in our society. Yeah, so thinking about this Christianly, what should be our response? So there's this academic field, CRT, that has kind of bled down into popular culture. And say someone listening to this wants to stand up for the marginalized, wants to fight racism, how can we draw from critical race theory in positive ways um, to do that work? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's what's interesting is in the New Testament, um, at various points, both uh, Paul and the author of the book of Hebrews, both kind of hints at um, Plato's cave, right? They're talking about shadows, the shadow of the true form. These are non-Christian uh, ways of analyzing and thinking about the world that these Christian authors have grabbed and used um, because they felt like it was helpful in articulating the new thing that God has done in Jesus Christ, right? Um, and so I think that it's just that simple, right? That that there are lots of different tools available to us um, that they don't have to be, like this idea that it's not the gospel. It was never claiming to be the gospel. It's claiming to be an academic discipline. And we have always used academic, I mean, Christians use cookbooks, right? That aren't necessarily <laughs> proclaiming Jesus, right? Um, but we find it helpful mm -hmm. as we gather in community, maybe to cook a meal and use this cookbook from someone who had no intentions of proclaiming Jesus, right? And the same thing, if we have uh, intentions to pursue God's new creation, God's reign, breaking into our world to participate in that, to seek after it, to participate in God's justice and peacemaking, then absolutely we can use these tools that are able to help us do that work even more carefully and more nuanced. And so um, I think that that's the way that we have always used knowledge, right? If knowledge is neither sacred nor secular, it's either true or it's not true. And so we need to figure out what helps us understand the world in ways that uh, uh, yield to the preeminence of Jesus Christ in all things, right? And all of it then is is good for um, uh uh, engaging our intellects, our minds, our understanding, and helping us to actually concretely love our neighbors and care for those that are disproportionately suffering in the world. Um, and so to the degree that, and I would, let me just add one more thing. Many of the, like Derek Bell, who's often considered like the father of uh, critical race theory, like he was a Christian, right? I think it was he like AME or Methodist or something. Like he was a Christian himself, right? Um, and so the idea that critical race theory is just this secular thing, the fact of the matter is that there's proto critical race theory, which is the work that Christians have been doing, honestly, for centuries, certainly in this land in the United States, that developed into what we now call critical race theory in terms of the academic discipline. Um, so it's this kind of simple binary is just uh, not a truthful telling. I mean, in some ways, Dr. King is just as much a proto, you know, figure to critical race theory as 
also Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois and, and, and so forth. Um, and so I think there's this long legacy that builds up to create something that we now call critical race theory that isn't explicitly Christian, um, but certainly isn't anti in and of itself either. In yeah. academia, it's like, I don't, my impression more and more is that so much of this is from Christendom and from Christian language and lingo, that it's it's so centered in Christianity that other, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so, so deeply influenced by Christians who are committed to the work of justice uh, over the long haul, and that has shaped as people took those convictions with them into the workplace, into the academics, right? Into all these different spheres, it has shaped the kind of work that they do in those spaces. And so Derek Bell went into legal studies and saw the limits of it. And it was his Christian imagination that pressed him to ask different kind of questions um, that could continue to allow justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like ever flowing streams. Yeah, I wonder what some of the folks that are protesting critical race theory would say to the um, like the, the example in, in Acts where where you have one group of people saying, "Hey, we're not being cared for. Our widows aren't being cared for," and the answer was not to, "Oh, they're just complaining. They're just playing the race card, or they're just playing playing the ethnic card." The response is, "We need to pay attention better to them. Maybe the apostles can't. Let's actually appoint people. Let's appoint critical race theory experts and call them deacons, although they weren't necessarily called deacons in quite the same way there in Acts." And have them pay special attention to make sure there's not an equity in the family of Christ. Yeah, and, and a radical response, right? All seven of the deacons have Hellenistic names instead of, you know, Greek names instead of uh, exactly. Hebraic names. And so this is a radical, like the first or last, last or first kind of response that we see in the early church that is taking seriously power dynamics, which I think is one of the concerns why people don't like critical theory is because it's exposing the power dynamics in our society that are being abused and misused for domination and for harm instead of for flourishing and the well-being and common good of all people. So what are some ways that uh, <laughs> white people uh, in in the U.S., because the majority of our listeners to that Jesus podcast are white, what are some ways that we can, um, whether we're like explicitly informed by that, um, by, by critical race theory or just the, the trickle down effect, what are ways that we can respond? What are the ways that we can engage and care for and push back against frankly, the, the majority face of Christianity, which sees critical race theory as heresy. You know, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of tricky. Like, what what's the best response? Um, I mean, some of it is if people, if you're going to enter into conversation, make people be particular, right? Because people are speaking abstractly. <laughs> so let's have an actual conversation. Hmm. So if someone says, you know, critical race theory um, splits people into oppressors and the oppressed, ask them what critical race theory they've read, right? And let's have a conversation and say, I invite you, let's let's read Derek Bell together and have a conversation about it, right? Um, and then you can help me see where this is happening and then, and then we can go on there. So as long as it's not staying in this abstract w way that continues to distort, misrepresent and disparage, mm -hmm. right? Personalize um, it. Then it's, 
Right. But if we get, then actually you may be able to invite them into a learning moment where they can actually engage the material and think about what it actually means for their own lives. So that's maybe one strategy. But I mean, I mean, the other thing is, I mean, there are lots of resources. The fact that, I mean, you could also invite them to look at some of the books that have been banned, right? I mean, I think they, they were banning like Ruby Bridges, you know, the children's book on Ruby Bridges, you know, story of integrating a school. Like, what does that have to do with critical race theory or, you know, the hate you give, right? A novel, mm -hmm. 1619, right? History. It, it Basically, like the, the common theme is black authors who are writing about racism in any way or form. That's the common denominator. And I think that we can have, again, specific conversations about what is it about this particular resource? Um, if you actually believe that it's critical race theory, then let's look at it together. And you help me, you, you can make it, put it on them, right? Help me mm -hmm. see what's so wrong about this text because mm -hmm. I'm not seeing um, what you're defining it as. And so that's maybe one strategy. But I also think on going on the flip side is to go, which the other direction I said, which is to invite them to read the Bible, right? Because the very things that they're accusing uh, critical race theory of, the Bible is actually guilty of. Mm -hmm. It's it's calling them and their lives oppressors, right? Often, yeah. and so, so, so I think that there's an invitation uh, for them to come with the starkness of the accusations of the Bible and and how it actually points the finger in maze in maybe ways that the critical race theory doesn't, um, and then they can decide if they want to ban the Bible as well, um, or if they want to immerse themselves nonetheless in the birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the things that I hear um, just, you know, around the around the schoolyard, um, not my schoolyard, but just in general, is this idea. So does this mean we have to apologize for being white? Does this mean that I need to be teaching my children they should be ashamed for being white? And I don't think that's what critical race theory is teaching. But if that's actually a message they're receiving, how can we respond to that? Well, first, I would want to ask, what do we mean when we use the word white, right? Um, because are we talking about, I'm assuming that when they say that it's making their kids feel bad for being white, they just mean for being of European descent in the way that they look, right? Mm -hmm. And I would say there's nothing wrong with being of European descent. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And there's nothing wrong with having lighter, you know, less pigmentation in one's skin, right? Um, it's just a part of God's diversity. Not everyone can be blessed with all the melanin, right? Um, but that said, we also have to talk about like, what does whiteness actually mean? What are we actually talking about? Um, and why are kids responding the way that they are to just facts, historical facts, mm -hmm. right? And the fact of the matter is, is that so if we go back to the 14th century and you said, you know, let's get all the white people together, like in Germany or UK or whatever, nobody would know what you're talking about, right? Because there's no, there's the idea of whiteness has not even emerged as a thing yet. No mm -hmm. one, so, so white was constructed, it was developed, it grew, it became a thing over centuries and it's directly in conversation and in uh, in flow with colonial conquest and slavery, right? Yeah. Um, that's the only reason why whiteness developed as a thing. It was a justification for, for uh, right, for slavery and conquest, uh, for plundering and exploitation of mm -hmm. lands and people's bodies um, and lives. And so, so if that's the case, and they identify with whiteness in that way, what has been constructed, 
then I would say it actually is not a good thing. You should not want to participate in something that is about social domination and plunder and exploitation of other people. And so in that sense, there is some not guilt or feeling bad about oneself, but repentance, confession, repentance, lament, and transformation that needs to happen. If we're certainly if we're followers of Jesus, um, then those things are incompatible with the way of Jesus, right? Even Jesus said himself, right, that uh, the Gentiles loaded over you, but not so, right? There's a different kind of way for followers of Jesus. And so if that's the case, then that kind of being white uh, for the purpose of exploiting others, being apathetic to the concerns and not seeing other people as fully human, right? Um, that those things are incompatible and actually th there actually does need to be a change. Um, so I would say if children are feeling bad because of who they are because of their ethnicity or how they look, then we want to affirm the, the image of God in them. But if they're feeling bad because of the history of European enslavement and colonization and they're shocked and horrified by it, and they're seeing their communal ties and sense of belonging to the community that did those harmful things, then they shouldn't be sh they shouldn't be shielded from the truth and the historical realities of what happened. They actually needed to be carefully guided through, uh, mentored through, um, uh, with with sensitivity and awareness to all the harm that's been done, and inviting them into different ways of living so that they don't repeat those things anymore. Um, and so I think that that's the the nuanced conversation around the making our children feel bad conversation that's not being had. Yeah, and so often I think people do feel bad um, because of the because people are talking about how how racism has impact that extends till to today even if you aren't going around chasing a black guy in a pickup truck and shooting him you're still in a sense a participant or a beneficiary of the system it feels bad because it not because it makes me as an individual Christian look bad but because it looks makes my quote-unquote country look bad and because my identity as a Christian is inextricable from my identity as an American, if you make my country look bad by talking about, you know, say the 1619 Project, well, then you make Jesus look bad because Jesus is my country. And right. this is my, <laughs> this, this is my frustration. They, they need yeah. to read Jesus and the disinherited. <laughs> yes, 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 they do. <laughs> Yeah. So, Dr. Hart, are there any ways that the critical race theory, the, the actual thing, would um, would run afoul of a biblical worldview, of a Jesus-centered, kingdom-centered approach? Can critical race theory um, go too far? Uh, so, I would say any any individual scholar or theory can go too far. So, I mean, I think that that you have to read each case by case like we do everything, right? Um, like I would also say every preacher can go too far. In fact, we have mm -hmm. plenty of evidence that, that many preachers have uh, misrepresented who Jesus Christ is, have affirmed him as a slaveholder, as a colonizer, as identifying with the rich and powerful. Um, and so we have to uh, be careful discerners of everything that we engage. Um, both um, in the church, unfortunately, as well as in the broader society. Um, so there's nothing special about it in that sense. Um, so I would never um, give wholesale just anything a critical race theorist says, you just got to eat it and swallow it whole. I'd say be careful readers of everyone. And there's probably 
some critical race theorists um, that are more helpful and some that aren't, right? Um, um, and that there are, even among critical race theorists, lively debates and different ways that people talk about um, how to understand our society and the racialized society that we live in. And so we should be attentive to the nuances even within the conversations within critical race theory. In some ways, critical race theory is really critical race theories, plural, right? Um, it's a conversation and that we can actually be a part of it. And if we're concerned about the direction of some of it, well then join the conversation, right? Go get your your M, your masters and your, you know, your um, you know, your degrees and, and join the conversation. You can participate in shaping the direction uh, towards something more redemptive and liberative. Um, but um, again, I, that someone would only do that if they actually cared about um, uh, seeking the flourishing of all humanity and seeking God's new creation in light of the white supremacy that has shaped our society for centuries. Um, one would opt out of that and just disparage the whole thing if one actually just wanted to, you know, challenge all efforts of anti-racism and racial justice. Well said. You have anything else to add there, Rebecca? I was just thinking, like having conversations about the subject, that some of this anti-CRT thing is like an attempt to maintain a control of, of voice. Because in post-colonial theory, you talk about like who controls voice and speech. So I guess one question I have is how does how does a Christian who might be, say, American or white or just how do they go through that process of, of recognizing that maybe there's some that we, you know, that we need to listen to other voices or not have not have to maintain that kind of control of voice. Um, is there a kind of like recommendation or uh, that you might have on that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so one of the things that I argue in my first book, Trouble I've Seen, I make a case for, I call it counterintuitive solidarity. And, and my argument is both historical and then theological, right? Historical in the sense of most white American Christians as well um, would agree that the majority of white Christians got it wrong in the past, right? 1619, all the way up to 1865, most of them agree, you know, Christians got it wrong, that they were on the wrong side of history. That's how people would say it today, right? In fact, most of them are shocked. I can't believe how, how could a white person have done that? How could they twist the Bible in such ways, I would right? never. Um, so the, right, I would never, right? And so there's this shock and condemnation of folks in the past. Um, and they believe that, you know, they would, if you ask them, was Frederick Douglass right or Sojourner Truth right, they'd say yes. If you ask them about uh, Ida B. Wells or, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, they'd say yes, right? If you ask them about King um, and other, like, you know, they'd say yes they'd all the way say, through. Wait, wait, who? Who's that, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, if they even knew, knew the names, right? Yeah. And so, but what's fascinating is that now, right, 400 years in, they think that they, once again, have the right position and don't need to listen to anybody else. And so my critique has always been, what are the odds that the community that's been right for 350 years and the community that's been wrong for 350 years suddenly, instantaneously, all swap positions in terms of epistemological advantage, right? There are ways of knowing. And now white people know better and black people don't know their own lived experience, right? Like, what are the odds? Or, um, you know, the other ways that, you know, to think about it in terms of that 
social location actually shapes our understanding and that some social locations uh, provide limited perspectives, right? And if you are part of a community that's a part of a dominant culture and that has been oppressing and dominating other people, that maybe you don't have the best vantage point for understanding what's going on in other people's lived experiences. And so then I think about it theologically and I, I think about like 1 Corinthians um, where, you know, Paul says that God, um, that he came to preach Christ crucified as his message <clears throat> and that in that, the power of God and the wisdom of God are being expressed in, in that, right? That's who God is expressed in the crucified Christ. And then just so we don't miss the point, he goes on, because some people might think it's an atonement theology point. He goes on, um, or in some ways you could say it is, but, but not in the way that people think it is. Um, he says, God has chosen the weak to shame the strong, and God has chosen those that are considered nothing to shame those that are considered something, right? That's how God works in the world, that God is actually uh, working on the axis of vulnerability within the world, um, and that we ought to be participating in, in that. And if that's true, then as followers of Jesus, especially those who are born and shaped and in, in socialized in white dominant culture, ought to then position themselves to explore the world from the vantage point of the crucified Christ, right? And that means that they need to be in solidarity and listening to the stories and experiences of those that have been crucified in the world and holding it as though those stories and experiences are sacred and allowing them to transform um, their their life and their way of seeing the world and understanding the world. And once they've done that, then they'll be free to to to, to go and explore the worlds um, from a different vantage point. Dr. Hart, we really appreciate your time. I have a couple more questions that I wanted to ask, um, but they're a little too juicy. So I want to keep them for our Patreon supporters. So if anyone wants to sign up for Patreon, you can hear... Dr. Hart answer a question about a mowing client I have, which is a civil war museum that flies the Confederate flag. And also what he thinks about Candace Owens and Dr. Vody Bauckham. So <laughs> go over to Patreon and you'll hear some really interesting <laughs> tidbits there. But for the rest of y'all, thank y'all so much for tuning in. Um, unless anyone else here on the call has any final thoughts you want to throw in. Thanks. Dr. Hart for always bringing it back to the kingdom and back to the upside down worldview that Jesus calls us to. Mm -hmm.